One of our pupils, Susan Foreman, came into this yard. Really? In here? Young man, is it reasonable to suppose that anybody would be inside a cupboard like that? Hmm? What do you say, Perry? We can go on nature walks, have picnics, and jolly evenings around the campfire. Gentlemen, I've got news for you. This lighthouse is under attack, and by morning we might all be dead. It's a brilliant idea. It's so simple, only you could have thought of it. Oh. I'm the doctor. These are my new best friends. I'm the doctor, and if there's one thing I can do, it's talk. This is the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast with your host, Eric Branson. My dear, I don't think he's as stupid as he seems. My dear, nobody could be as stupid as he seems. Now drop your weapons. On this podcast, we travel all of time and space discussing Doctor Who in a completely random order. Today we have landed on episode number one, The Sun Makers. It's more like a big ball of wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. I'm going to need a swap team ready to mobilize street level maps covering all of Florida, a pot of coffee, 12 jammy dodgers, and a fez. An apple a day keeps the. Uh... No, never mind. Allons-y. I'm sorry. It's French. But let's go. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the first ever Police Box in a Junkyard podcast. We have so much exciting stuff to get to, so I'll try not to take too long uh, talking so that we can get to the main event. Our conversation today is about the 1977 Doctor Who story, The Sunmakers. Yay! However, being that this is the first episode, I did want to take a few minutes to introduce you to the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast and to me, your humble host. I am Eric Branson, and some of you will recognize my name and voice from my full-time podcast, the great and glorious Video Junkyard podcast where we spend our time watching forgotten or underappreciated films, predominantly from the 80s and 90s. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, by all means, look it up. Well, the Police Box in a Junkyard podcast was an idea I had early on after getting into the world of podcasting. It wasn't called that yet, but essentially started out as a Doctor Who version of the Video Junkyard podcast. Simple, right? Well, we couldn't have that. So I decided not only would we be looking at a number of TV stories of Doctor Who, but also novels and audio adventures, because, you know, my life is not busy enough. In theory, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast will bring you a review discussion of a TV story, a book, either fiction or nonfiction, and an audio adventure or audiobook once every month. Here's the shtick, although it's not a highly original one, but gotta have a shtick, right? I will be selecting the shows, books, and audios we listen to in a completely random order. So at the end of every episode, we'll fire up the randomizer and let you know what the next respective story will be. So stay tuned at the end of the show for that. Should be fun. When we've selected the shows and books we'll be reviewing, I'll call it out via our Facebook page and see who wants to join me to talk about it. I'll try to give everyone a month to prepare, especially in the case of a book... Our panels are consist of fellow podcasters, Doctor Who authors, and experts, and, well, you. I welcome any of the listeners to come on the show and chat about our favorite show with us. Um, it's most, you know, it's a lot of fun to talk about Doctor Who with uh, fellow Whovians, if you will. We want to hear your opinion directly from you. If you didn't know, there are hundreds of reference texts dedicated to Doctor Who, and since I happen to be a collector of all things Doctor Who, I happen to own quite a few of them. Although I did use the, many of them in my research and preparation for the show you're about to hear... I am going to feature a new and hopefully different one every week on the show. Um, this week we'll be referring to this one. Doctor Who, The Complete Guide by Mark Campbell. Fifth edition. Copyright 2013. Running press. 
Also, we will always be getting in our series dates and continuity notes from the ultimate guide to the Doctor Who universe, the unmatched and incomparable, and honestly, if you're a big Doctor Who nerd like myself, you need to get yourself a copy of this absolutely staggering three-volume set. It's as impressive as it is essential. A History. An Unauthorized History of the Doctor Who Universe. By Lars Pearson and Lance Parkin. Fourth Edition. Copyright 2019. Mad Norwegian Press. I'd like to introduce you to a very special person my companion on these travels, and the computerized voice of my TARDIS, this is Amy. Say hello, Amy. Hello, Amy. You may have heard her during the show intro, but she's going to be helping me throughout the podcast with all kinds of things. I am not actually a person, but a speech-to-text protocol, and AMY is an acronym that stands for Another Machine Yodeling. Mostly being snarky and laughing at my jokes. Your jokes are worse than my dad's, and he was running Windows 3.1. We will have a trivia question on every show. And I also have lots of other tidbits from every corner of the Hooniverse. Too much stuff to tell you about right now. You're not going to say the show is bigger on the inside, are you? Well, I guess not anymore, but uh, you get it. Anyway, without any further ado, let's get on with today's show. Today we are looking at The Sunmakers. Amy, can we get a synopsis? From Doctor Who, The Complete Guide. The Sunmakers. Starring Tom Baker as the Doctor and Louise Jameson as Leela. Directed by Pennant Roberts and written by Robert Holmes. The Sunmakers was originally broadcast in four parts between the 26th of November 1977 and the 17th of December 1977. Prezi. The company is taxing the inhabitants of Pluto's Megropolis one into the ground. The revolution on Pluto occurs in the far distant future. Our history, by Lars Pearson and Lance Parkin states the Sunmakers is taking place in the year 4 million AD. Where are we? We're still in the solar system. Pluto? Pluto? The ninth planet. Breathable atmosphere, that's wrong. There are buildings. Pluto's a lifeless rock. It is like Earth. We created a new environment for them here on Pluto. Six suns to be fueled and serviced. The taxes, I can't pay the taxes. Taxes are the primary consideration to These taxes, they are like sacrifices to tribal gods. Then the people should rise up and slaughter their oppressors. He's a time lord, known as the Doctor. He's an alien landed on this planet by mistake. Has a long history of violence and of economic subversion. He will not be sympathetic to my company's business methods. Within 10 seconds, everyone in the city will be dead. Magnificent! Today we are going to be talking about the 1977 uh, Tom Baker story, The Sunmakers, and I have a panel of uh, distinguished Doctor Who experts and fans um, with me today um, that I will uh, allow them to ma mainly make their introductions, but let's go ahead and start with you, Larry. Um, Thank you. How are you? Thanks I'm for great. joining us. <laughs> oh, it's good. great to be here. I'm, I'm Larry Van Mersberg, and I've uh, been watching the show since 1975. I am credited with starting the first Doctor Who only store in Chicago back in 1984. And I only found out about that when I read Red, White and Who. <laughs> I was like, really? Wow. Red, White and Who. The story of Doctor Who in America by Stephen Warren Hill, Jennifer Adams Kelly, 
Nicola Seidler and Robert Warnock with Janine Fenwick and John Lavalli. Copyright 2017. 8TB Publishing. Uh, and I host and produce the Doctor Who Collectors podcast since I've been an avid collector since 1981. And um, amassing, you know, as you can see behind me, you know, people listening can't see it, but I've got, I'm in the Who Room where I do my podcast. And uh, it's, it's uh, 25 episodes in about two years of running right now. So it's, I've been a speaker at uh, Chicago TARDIS. Uh, actually, uh, you know, been, I've known Gene Smith longer than anybody else. <laughs> so <laughs> is that your claim to fame? Is that anywhere in, in Red, White and Who as well? Uh, <laughs> actually, I, my, my name never appeared. But when somebody said, hey, check out page 384, I said, Oh my God, that's the name of my company. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know the book was being written at the time, which was kind of fun. But when someone pointed out to me and then someone else brought me a copy of the catalog that we produced and the catalog <laughs> has all hand-drawn artwork, which is a collector's item in itself. But it was the, it was the piece we put out uh, labor of heavy labor. We mailed it out. We, that's what made the whole thing a big success. So it was, it was just amazing to see that it was part of history. I had no idea. But. And so you've been watching the show since the, the mid seventies. And I know when it yes. was um, in syndication on, on, on PBS stations so across the, mm. across the country. Uh, when did you first see the Sunmakers? Do you remember seeing this one? I do actually. It was probably about 1978 uh, when uh, channel 11 WTW Chicago was showing it in half hour segments from five 30 to six every night. And I saw it for the first time. I've, I've seen the episode probably about eight or nine times since then. Cause it's one of my favorite stories. And, and it, it actually has some of the um, uh, two very well-known British actors in it who appeared in it, uh, Henry Wolfe and uh, Richard Leach, um, mm -hmm. who have appeared in, you know, Wolfe was in uh, the Hot Rocky Horror Picture Show and Leach was in Gandhi. So, I mean, some pretty major, major players and, of course, uh, over-the-top actors. Uh, yes, <laughs> and, very much. And Robert Holmes, who so, wrote the story, I know, and we'll get into this, I know, very much, had oh, a yeah. completely, <laughs> completely twisted idea for it in the first place that had to get toned down by the uh by the script <laughs> editor so but it's a yeah. fun story yeah thanks without any further ado i would like to introduce uh or you'd rather have him introduce himself but uh my second guest nathan how are you all right how are you doing oh pretty good i am honored to be on this uh well i guess i don't know if it's the first episode because you're, you're you're playing around format but i'm, I'm honored <laughs> it, to be here it will be among the first if not the first but yes sure <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. So I have been a fan for 35 years, since 1985, when I was five years old and saw The Seeds of Doom. My PBS station showed um, them in movie format, uh, so yeah. I very quickly was able to cycle through all the doctors at that time. We got up to Colin Baker and then wow. went back to William Hartnell even, and so then saw the wow, William Hartnell, yeah. Troughton, and Pertwee stories, and then the first half of Tom Baker to link up where I was, and uh, it was only really the McCoy years that I missed because when we moved away from Florida, we moved to South Carolina where they didn't show Doctor Who anymore, and so... Um, I had only seen, so it took me years to see seasons 25 and 26. Um, oh, man. The yeah. year started early for you. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, I used to beg my parents to take me to the, to the closest store that had Doctor Who merchandise, which was an wow. hour's drive away. <laughs> so uh, that used to be like my reward for, you know, for things <laughs> is, to, is to get to go there. So been a collector for most of my life also. 
Yeah. Sounds like it was lucky at that point that you were even within an hour from somewhere that had Doctor Who stuff. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was the uh, Intergalactic Trading Company out of Florida, is oh, what they yeah, call yeah, themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and Nathan is also the uh, host of the 42 cast. If uh, you want to tell us about that, I'll let you plug that real quickly, but just wanted to make sure you got that one. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. Yeah. You know, I skipped. I skipped because Larry was having such fun talking about Doctor Who. I wanted to jump right into talking about my Doctor Who. But uh, yes, I am the host of the 42 cast, which does not specifically have anything to do with Doctor Who, but we do talk about it from time to time. It is the uh, ultimate answer to fandom geekiness and everything. If you're familiar with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you get the joke um but uh, but yeah it's just a show where we have rotating guests about rotating topics so every episode something different um and i've got different people talking with me about it so it's fun doing that i actually and you probably don't even know this eric i'm actually starting a second podcast because i like oh, to yeah. myself um, yeah, i know all about that okay. <laughs> it's called time streams and um, it's going to be a Doctor Who podcast oh, where nice. my friend Juliet um, and I are going to go through all of Doctor Who uh, television, at least, in order. Um, uh, and so the, the, the sort of the, the pitch on it is that I'm a classic series fan and she's a new mm -hmm. series fan. And we're going to watch oh. through the whole show together and tell each other why we should like it. So <laughs> that, that will be I, I like fun. the premise like that. Yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> sets up some good, some good arguments, but yeah. Sure. Now, uh, last but not certainly not least, I would like to introduce our uh, third panelist, and that is a member of the Video Junkyard Podcast family and co-host of the TV Junkyard Podcast, uh, David Andrews. How's it going? Hey, thank you so much for having me on the show, Eric, uh, but I'm definitely the least. Um, I uh, came in on New Who. I'm kind of our, our New Who guy here. Uh, uh, hey, I'm, so, the, I'm the other half of that, technically, although I've gotten into classic and, and probably became just as big of a fan, if not bigger, of the classic series, but I came in on new as well. So, I'm, Oh, yes. I, I'm currently working <laughs> backwards, basically. I'm kind of the River Song. I started with New Who, and now I'm jumping my way back, and uh, I uh, don't have any impressive podcasts to speak of besides uh, our own TV junkyard, which uh, covers a lot of obscure TV and we even have done recently a Doctor Who special on season 12. This is the first time you'd seen The Sunmakers or had you seen this one? Oh, yes. Before? Yes, this is my first time seeing The Sunmakers. It's my first time seeing Leela as a companion. A whole bunch oh, of firsts. Oh, wow. Well, that's mm -hmm. a treat. I mean, like, like, seriously, she's probably my second favorite oh, yeah. companion yeah. Of, of all time. So, yeah. yeah. I, and she, she is the um, nicest lady, too. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Kind of a background. I, I basically, I've seen maybe one or two serial uh, of each classic Doctor, and that's about my mm. entire classic run experience so far. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, I think this is, hopefully, you feel the same way, and we'll, we'll dig into it, but I hope this was a, a good one to kind of jump you into this era of Doctor Who, which I feel like even the Tom Baker era is too long to be called one era. This is kind of like right around the turning point and right in the middle of his, uh, where things are a change in at the BBC. Um, but uh, especially in regards to the show, there was some stuff about uh, it being too violent and scary, especially during the um, Hinchcliffe, Philip Hinchcliffe uh, being the yeah. producer or script editor at the show. And they were trying to kind of lighten it up a little bit. The revolution is getting nearer. What's the company policy on that? It will be quelled. Business will continue as usual. Uh, let's dive right in. I think um, sure. the first thing I want to talk about about the Sunmakers, and there's a lot to talk about in my opinion. Again, like Larry said, this is also one that in my initial watch through the series stuck out as one of the 
my favorites, even among the Tom Baker era and the Hinchcliffe Williams era, which is probably my favorite era of Doctor mm -hmm. Who. If I have to name favorites, I kind of hate doing that because I, I really enjoy most of it. You know, even some of the stuff that isn't everyone's favorite. But um, mm -hmm. I think the, the real strength of Doctor Who as a show or a series is always been like the quality of the writing and acting. Obviously, we can see that um, often that it's it's strong enough that it can overcome some of the other shortcomings of the series that, you know, or especially from a modern standpoint that could be pointed out as shortcomings, um, the budget or, you know, where the way the budget affects, you know, production design, costume, special effects. Um, and I think the Sunmaker is a perfect example um, because it's kind of an especially frugal one, even for the era of time that it was put together or that mm -hmm. appears to be. Um, and I feel like coming in from like a younger viewer's uh, standpoint, that's possibly a little alienating in, with this one. Um, I don't know. I, I could be wrong, but it's been said that some of the simplicity and drabness of the design was intentional from, from a production production standpoint. Um, do you think this seems likely uh, or do you think that the, or, or, and, or do you think the overall cheapness of the story hurt it in any way? And I guess we'll start with you, Nathan. You. Uh, the only thing that I think I have a problem with about the cheapness of it is the incredibly slow moving go-kart that we have uh, everyone drive away in and the fact that those guards could easily just run and overtake this thing and there's no reason why that you know this should be like oh we're getting away onward you know that that looks really bad um yeah, the rest I of I was going to say, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Austin Powers movies, but I can't yes, get through that yeah. scene without thinking of the, the steamroller <laughs> scene. It's that, too but. bad they didn't have to turn around anywhere because, yeah, that would have been, <laughs> been funny. But, um, but yeah, no, I think that, um, I mean, Rob Bob Holmes' writing is so good. And so once you clue into the fact that this is something that is very humorous, I think that helps a lot of those issues because, you know, we're used to comedies you know, being a little more, you know, playing a little more loose with, you know, the reality, how good the sets look and things like that. So I think that, you know, helps with it. But also it's just, you know, everybody is acting it as if it's absolutely real, which I think is one of the things that most eras of the of classic mm -hmm. who do very well and they're selling it. Mm -hmm. And so when you have great performers, when you've got a well-written script that's very humorous, you know, and, and everybody's treating it like these are life and death situations. And so it's kind of funny to say that in a comedy, but it is. It's a comedy, but there's also yeah. <laughs> life and death situations. And so all that combines together, I think, to make something where, yeah, I mean, you're not too worried about the set design and everything. You're, you're worried about the characters and the situations. Yeah. Um, Larry, any thoughts on... Yeah, the, right from the get-go, you've got a guy wandering a corridor and then somebody pokes their head out of the wall and said, your father died. <laughs> and then yeah. right away, it's like, oh, wonderful. That's great news and all that. And then, of course, the whole line about how we can't pay the taxes. And you go to see the gatherer who's, you know, Richard Leach, who's in this ridiculous outfit with this miter. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, this big tall hat and, and hello, you know, that kind of thing. It, it's, it's over the top. I mean, the acting kind of helps you ignore the fact that some of the sets look like they could blow over with a, with a strong wind or, or where, you know, obviously the top of some industrial building they used for the roof mm -hmm. and, and it's just, it's really quite, and like what Nathan said about the cars, if they had to do a five point turnabout, they weren't getting through that hallway because <laughs> it barely fit the car. <laughs> 
Yeah. I'm fascinated though yeah. by that sort of sun motif in the yeah, gatherer's yeah. office. I, I mm. that looks good, and, and it, it just was. seems like kind of out of place. Like it's like you know this sort of stylized sun symbol, and you know I, I think that 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 looks really good. It came from an early version of, and I'm not going to remember the production designer's name off the top of my. The production designer was Tony Snodden. At least somebody here is doing their research. But um, the an early version of the production design wanted to do uh, a lot of the the background stuff with uh, Aztec, uh, or was using Aztec artwork as their um, inspiration. They made like two pieces of it and basically ran out of money and they changed direction on it. So the one surviving piece they used in the actual show is that thing that hung in the back of the uh, gatherer's uh, office, the big kind of Aztec sun. Um, I guess the uh, entire Megropolis was supposed to be kind of Aztec influenced, and they ended up dropping yeah. that as an idea, but that piece survived so, and made it into the show. And it is, it's probably one of the most interesting set pieces in, in the show. But mm -hmm. um, David, did you think uh, being the first time through, and you're, <laughs> you're gonna get a, lot, a few guinea, guinea pig questions here, so bear with me, but mm -hmm. um, being the first time seeing this, do you, do you feel like any of this was alienating or, um, did it feel intentional? Did it strengthen the story in any way? Because there are some arguments that perhaps the sparseness actually lends itself very well to kind of the, the political message and the conflict mm -hmm. going on here. Well, not necessarily alienating as much as maybe unintentionally humorous. <laughs> you know, uh, so, sometimes it's a little hard to focus when you're in a planet of hospital corridors, but uh, at, the, <laughs> at the same time, the setting was so fascinating and unique um, as long as you allowed your imagination to kind of carry it with you, it doesn't really matter because the concept uh, itself is fascinating. Like a planet where the rich people are like, and you get a son, and you get a son, and you get a son. Yeah. And uh, everybody is basically working to death, which is yeah. uh, surprisingly yeah. a modern message. Well, see, I thought that the whole idea of the office corridors was actually fitting to the story because this was basically one big office building planet yeah. where everybody yeah. was working. And so I thought that that actually worked okay. Yeah, and I think that's where some of the arguments are coming from people saying that perhaps we shouldn't sell them so short that we're kind of used to like kind of nitpicking at Doctor Who for being cheap. But perhaps that some of this, you know, uh, start general beige color of everything, some of this uh, mm -hmm. lack of set dressing in places was actually intentional from a design aspect to kind of sell that idea. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a there are no pleasures here. This is a work work is life society um, and. So I, I think I could buy that argument. I don't know that mm -hmm. that's true for, you know, but it, it would be hard to like read this script or, or approach this from a design aspect and not think of some of those things. So I think I could buy that argument. Well, if, I, if I'll if i say this, when, the one time I watched it with a friend of mine who was from England and he was laughing hysterically watching it. And I had to say, <laughs> why are you laughing? He goes, he goes, the corridor numbers, they, they all represent <laughs> government tax forms in England, like P45 or, or PCM, which stands for per calendar month, because yep, Robert yep. Holmes was totally poking fun at, it says, Inland Revenue Services, which yes, was the tax, the tax basically the IRS, time, right? The IRS, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and po focusing on the whole of how the government would run, although they changed, you know, and he, it got toned down quite a bit. Um, in the uh, by the director so it was just yeah. you know he wanted to poke fun at the exchequer of the uh you know which is henry wolf's bushy eyebrows represented the same i guess the guy uh that um that did it was uh i can't I might oh, the name will here. sound familiar because they talk about dennis healy yeah. dennis yeah, healy dennis healy 
and um, he, you know, so it was it was very much a poke at the uh, English tax system, and and he, I guess, he nails it with the collector, and then Henry Wolf plays that little guy in the chair, and he is just uh-huh. yep. a brilliant actor, um, and it was so selling that the guy was so alien that you believed it. And the other thing I really, you know, if I inject this is that the, the weapon in this story is not an alien race using um, what energy weapons or this. They're using economics to basically <laughs> yep. completely dominate. Uh, and then, yeah, when the suns run out, they will die. You know, that, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, it's just so evil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So like, Often classic Who's stories like succeed or fail, and we were to, to bring this back to the, the amazing kind of amazing performances, not kind of amazing performances in this mm-hmm. uh, episode, mm-hmm. because classic Doctor Who stories often succeed or fail based on its supporting cast. So we know that Tom Baker's great, and we know Louise Jameson's great, and you know K nine is questionable at this point. I think, <laughs> although I, I love K nine, but some mm-hmm. people are you know, um, but they. Uh, I think the really great stories are the ones where, that have these memorable supporting characters. Yes. And Robert Holmes arguably, I think was probably the best writer of creating like distinct and memorable, like what you would call one-time use characters for her mm-hmm. story characters. Um, and this one has a supporting cast that is, is fantastic and, and, and doesn't take a whole lot of screen time, but develops very distinct characters. Um, some, some of the rebels might, you know, kind of blend together a little bit, but they, they definitely have a couple of distinct and wonderful characters. Um, what do you think, like, of the ensemble cast of the uh, story of the Sunmakers exclusive characters? And then what do you think are like the standout performances, Nathan? We'll start with you. Oh, okay. So, uh, Gatherer Haig. Um, yes, yes. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the whole thing of, you know, he's so fawning and, and everything when You're he's, you know. <laughs> right, yeah. yes, exactly. But then he. Voluminousness. Right, but then he's so convinced of how smart he is and everything. Oh, I figured out exactly what's going on. And this is this and this and this Ajax and, you know, that. And so it's kind of funny as the audience watching it, knowing that he's got everything absolutely wrong as he is so self-assured that he's got this thing sewn up and he's gonna figure it out and then the fact that he can't at the very end like consciously like process it where he's going up to all these people by himself thinking i'm untouchable i'm the gatherer and just telling them like no you've got to leave the roof you know like this isn't right you know that's his end (laughs) is because he cannot understand that he has so misread the situation that he's so out of touch Yes. you know that that this is the end for him and so yeah i mean good good story arc but also great performance by him of, of just selling that kind of of character mm-hmm. yeah this richard leach that and, and i know leach, Larry, you yeah. mentioned him um, earlier uh david what did you think of the characters in this i mean outside obviously you know the doctor and have a familiarity with the uh, leela probably by reputation maybe or but at least have a familiarity with the doctor companion thing for being a fan of the show but what do you think of some of the other characters um well uh like uh nathan said the villains were excellent very over the top um mm-hmm. but yeah i think it kind of worked because it was um they always knew when he was talking that's for sure like uh there was never a moment where where you weren't like not completely focused on him by the way he spoke and the way he articulated 
Um, but for some reason, one of my favorite characters that jumped out to me was the guy that was about to receive uh, the punishment when Tom Baker first wakes up. It's just completely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bishop is the character's name. Uh, Tom Baker, like, frees him. He's still just totally chill with it. He's like, oh, yeah, all right. I'm, I'll join your cause now. That's fine. Let him just spend <laughs> the whole time just being a complete bro, staying chill, doing whatever he's told. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the the uh, scene when and I was reading somebody's um, take on it, thinking uh, that it was kind of a cold moment from the doctor that when he said that when they come to to take him away, like he's being released and he's going to be taken to Gatherer Hayes' office, um, he he says, "Well, what about my chum or my pal, whatever he calls him?" And uh, they say no, and so the doctor just kind of gives him a look like, "Oh, oh well, I tried." Kind of, <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, <laughs> But then I love the fact that he goes back and leaves him the the packet of jelly babies, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I so somebody pointed out that it was an especially cold scene from the Baker Doctor. I'm like, no way. He walks back and gives him the. I mean, that's like the from from the Fourth Doctor. That's a, a major compassion moment. I think like that. That was a we're like you said, bros, right there. It was. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the doctor at this point knows that this place is so bad that he's going to have to do something about it. So he figures the guy's going to get freed one way or another pretty soon. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Larry, what do you think? I know you, you mentioned uh, some right off the bat some of the things that yeah. you uh, found memorable about the cast. But... Oh, definitely. Well, being a Blake 7 fan, Michael Keating, of course, mm-hmm. uh, being in the cast was was very exciting for me to see. And I, I also loved uh, William Simons, who played Mandrill. You know, the leader of the underground gang turned, you know, hero later, you know, for helping, you know, destroy the place, basically, and leading that revolution, even though he was completely like, nope, I'm going to stay in the basement and be just who I am. Yeah, uh, that was a great thing. And just um, and some of the other, you know, just the. The, the whole, the way that the characters interacted, you know, that whole gang was together. And then Leela, of course, you know, brings them together because she, she defeats him. You know, I'm, I'm not just a woman, you know, and takes him out. And there's some very good lines between the two of them. It's like, I will see your skin flayed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, things, things like that. And just, just some great lines or, uh, or even when he goofs up at the end, when he's, you know, doctors rescuing Leela from the incinerator and or the steamer, I should say. Yeah, and, the, um, steamer, yeah. the steamer. Yeah, it's like I like a good steaming. And the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, what's the uh, line that this is the the job satisfaction line when I can't right, quote yeah. exactly? But <laughs> yeah, give the workers yeah. twenty minutes off. Yeah, I mean <laughs> the, co- <laughs> the collector is so truly like oily and, yes, and disgusting, yes. and he just performs it so well. And there's this great scene where the doctor's talking with him towards the end, and the doctor's oh, sort yeah. of hunched down to get on eye level with him, and he's just reaching out, stroking his curly hair. <laughs> yeah, and it's this really sort of creepy, sort of like dude, personal space. This is not <laughs> yeah. okay, kind of thing. And supposedly just, that that was a Henry Wolf. Like, that's the a Henry Wolf thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. That was his thing. Yeah, he, he just read because he just thinking that the the character was bald he was working under a bald cap that he would be jealous of the doctor's you know head of hair right (laughs) (laughs) but it just gives the character just another dimension of just like just pure creep factor right yeah he was without being a a, you know quote-unquote bug-eyed monster or whatever um just was a really creepy villain and just yeah because of his swarthiness i guess and just yeah just unsettling it was a great performance um Mm -hmm. Things that I found interesting um, was uh, 
what's his name? Cordo is a really oh, great Cordo. character and yes. a great performance from the actor who played him. Um, Roy McCready. Roy McCready yeah. Who, according to like everything I saw in the, the commentary on the, on the DVD, didn't go on to do a whole lot more, uh, did some soap mm-hmm. operas and then kind of faded into, you know, whatever the rest of his you know career ended up being. But um I really thought he was great in this mm-hmm. and a memorable character. And I like his change throughout. And then he, he's really funny as kind of this gung ho kind of found his second calling in life, uh, um, rebel and, uh, just wanted to get it, get a mention of his, his great performance. Um, I do think it's interesting that it, the original script, Bob Holmes script had no female characters outside of Leela and Pennant Roberts changed a couple of the director, yes. Pennant Roberts mm-hmm. changed a couple of the, um, the, uh, what's her name? Varn, I think is the uh, Marn. 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 Marn, Marn with an M. Yep. Janina Scott. Yeah. I got it mixed up. It's Veet is the other female character. Marn right. and Veet, uh, who is one of the uh, rebels or the underground right. Morlock type <laughs> people. Um, and so that, that was interesting. Just that the change kind of added some, and, uh, especially with the Varn, I think I, I can't, I think it really, uh, helped that dynamic between the two of the characters. Um, but yeah, Pennant Roberts said that he literally changed that because um, there were some accusations of the show being misogynistic and he just wanted to open up the door to having more female characters. Yeah. So there were obviously those people already detractors or you know, um, some people that were, you know, com- I don't even wanna say complaining because that's not what I mean. It's a very valid uh, observation, no. but yeah. um, it became a trademark of Pennant Roberts that he would do that in every script after that. Every time he did a yeah. Doctor Who story, he would take at least one male character and make it female. Just And it shows like how, how little that character needed to be male right. if right. you can just change them, you know, and it's the script's still the same. It's just now it's a woman playing the part. And yeah. it's also interesting that during this time period, uh, Louise Jameson and Tom Baker were not getting along very well. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not like each other while this was going on they, they they've made amends many years later yes. uh, but um but uh, louise jameson has said openly a lot of times no we did not we were not friends mm-hmm. at the time and there was a lot of uh tom was very big on himself and of course later he re- regretted that but um just just the way that you know and of course they did work together brilliantly they were very professional and yeah tom baker i mean i don't feel like you could ever yeah. tell if you no. didn't know the story that there was some, an issue between them However, I think uh, Robert Holmes apparently was aware of this and wrote yes. the part in this, uh, really the part in the Sunmakers deliberately to separate her from Tom yeah. Baker so she'd get a chance to shine on her own, which is which, which is she fantastic because yeah. she really does. Like, yeah. I mean, Leela's great in a lot of these stories, uh, but this one, she really becomes this fantastic character and kind of, a you know, the, the thing every good companion does is become kind of a second doctor almost. Like, she becomes a leader and she... Um, gets all these people riled up and um yeah yeah actually because she had come in from midway through the previous season there was some question of whether she'd be written out in this story and she wanted to die she wanted to be killed off louise jameson thought that's the way for leela to be written out is for her Mm -hmm. to die sacrificing herself for the doctor but um, graham williams uh convinced her to extend her contract to the end of the season and so that didn't happen but uh but yeah, that's 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 a what if scenario that could have you know, played out. And I'm glad that it didn't because I absolutely yeah. love Leela and I love yeah. that they're doing so much with her with Big Finish. And Gra- Graham Williams did not want to kill off any companions, and they hadn't done since the uh, '60s. Mm-hmm. So um, there was something that 
they, you know, no, no, that's not, that's not an option. Leo yeah, is not going to die. Yeah. I'm incredibly grateful that they didn't go through it the way they were going to do it in the episode. Cause supposedly she's going to die in the, the safe breaking scene when she walked into the force field. Right. That yeah. potentially was the moment potentially would have been the moment when they would have killed her off. And it just seems like such a bad, it's like, I could see Leela dying, right? Like running into battle or doing something, you having a great hero type death, but walking into a force field and killing herself just would have been a terrible, terrible <laughs> accident end for that where character. she just didn't know that there was danger. Yeah. yeah. I would have been real so upset about that. And I'm so glad they didn't. And, and plus we got more Leela. So. Right. Right. I will say it's, I credit, I credit Robert Holmes for inventing the modern day ATM in 1977 <laughs> yeah the, walking into a booth the booth closes behind you you put your card in the machine i said that they hadn't been invented yet so this was it was still an idea or and he i guess he wanted to make the cards look like barclay credit cards yeah. but Supposedly the, the prop did and they added some tape to it to prevent yeah because uh <laughs> graham williams is like no we're not giving the bank free publicity <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot of funny ideas he was a very very uh a very satirical uh act uh writing and just to some great stuff especially uh the, just the whole idea of you know the steaming for the execution that was so original um yeah you know we, and kind of like off-putting and disgusting when you really think about like what steaming somebody to death would be yeah. like it's one well, of those... well yeah because that takes it from being an execution like a beheading or something that's quick or a firing right. squad to this is something where we want to torture the person as they die which shows something about the, these guys the society yeah. you know and he wired it for sound so he could hear every scream <laughs> that was yeah. it's like it's like quiet i want to hear the screaming <laughs> you know just that it was just so so fun to watch uh just well even the talk of well people can watch it at home on their tvs he's like oh it's not the same you miss the, the nuance and everything and it's just <laughs> yes. like oh man this guy's hardcore he's talking like a, like it's a baseball game you know? <laughs> right, exactly. it's, like, it's like at home who does that yeah <laughs> been a shade of what the later story of vengeance on varos as mm. the, the public yeah executions where everybody watches from home so well that's i'll yeah. tell you that's that was also ahead of its time for a different podcast but people voting yes or no and depending on the vote goes <laughs> all right yeah. hang under your hats <laughs> um, zap a politician don't you think commercial imperialism is as bad as military conquest we have tried war but the use of economic power is far more effective so there's been a lot of talk and may probably not from a lot of people we need to take seriously, but uh, that Doctor Who has recently, quote unquote, become political. And uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is obviously, I mean, now that we've, you, we've all just recently sat down and rewatched The Sunmakers, it's untrue that this is a recent thing because this is a Doctor Who story that is overtly political. Oh yeah, very much so. Unapologetically political satire. Um, what do you guys think in general about Doctor Who being political? And what is your takeaway from the Sunmaker specifically? And, and David, we'll start with you. What do you, so it was your first time with it? Yeah, I mean, Doctor Who has always been a overtly political show. I think for someone to say it just became political is a, a bit of a, definitely an understatement. Um, it's almost, even from the beginning, they've, they've shown stories with like political influence uh, even if it's just, if it's based in historical context, at the very least, um, and the Slummakers itself is is almost a very modern society because I don't think the uh, the things they were critiquing on back in um, I'm sorry, what what year was this released? Uh, late seventy seven. I I don't think we've ever uh, really solved those uh, questions or or looked upon it that deeply because uh, it still feels like you could have made this with uh, with Jody tomorrow and it's literally applies to almost the exact same context 
I would yeah, like, it's got a lot of universals yeah. in there. Yeah. I wouldn't mind seeing Jody going head to head with the collector. <laughs> <laughs> Bring him back. He was just trapped in the chair. He could come right. back. <laughs> I'm back. He was flushed. He can be unflushed. Henry Wolf is still alive, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Now you've talked me into it. Now I think it's a good idea. Let's do it. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely political, making fun of um, the financial system and how economics can actually, you know, as we, as we know today, living in today's world, you know, that, you know, when you shut down, you know, we'll shut down production or we'll turn off the suns and watch them die or whatever the, you know, they're all working for their lives. And, and of course the, the whole, uh, I keep, I, I always wish we, we could work in Talmars just to say how, you know, <laughs> what do you mean it cost this much? I saved up this much. It took me four work cycles and I couldn't sleep for a week while they raised the taxes while you were waiting. <laughs> so it was, oh and no. Ig ignorance is no excuse. <laughs> right. Ignorance yeah. of the law will not be tolerated. And, and, and I, and I love the little scene when he goes to pay his taxes and he goes, not on the desk. <laughs> is that what? Is that it's mahogany? I think it's is that wood? No, you're too good. No, it's too good for you to touch. You know that kind of. But I I love that interaction of of you know and of course uh, Richard Leach plays that over the top, and he's just oh, yeah. brilliant at it. And and of course he he's a complete fool throughout the entire episode. Mm -hmm. You know the whole the whole story. But there's some there's some great um, one of the things I love about this classic story is that there's so many subplots going on that. You know, in today's stories, I only feel like there's one or two subplots, but here there was many. There was your revolution. There was, um, you know, the collector had his plan. The you know the gatherer had a whole different idea, and you had another set of people. You know, they thought the Ajax were revolting, and maybe they weren't. Yeah. Oh, no, we don't know. It's there was a lot of stuff that was kind of put, and then before it all got together. Um, and of course, how they dealt with uh, the police box on the roof, you know, and it's like, how did they get dropped this here? This was a practical joke by one of the other Magropolins. <laughs> but um, um, it, it, it's just a beautiful story. Uh, we have a special guest here. Hello, buddy. Oh, hi. <laughs> Hello. We woke if, him up. <laughs> if we don't ever do, end up doing a video version of this, this is Larry's, Larry's yeah. cat is visiting us. Yeah. <laughs> He, um, he got a little lonely so that's all right but it's a, no it's just a, a really brilliantly political story and the the last the last story just to go back in time a little bit the last real big political story that i always remember was day of the daleks when they mm -hmm. talked about a peace conference that basically meant if it went wrong the world goes into war and the daleks invade and subjugate so it, it was <laughs> You know, and then at the end they go, well, I guess we're going to have to see how it goes. And, you know, just the, the whole thing. And the same thing with robot. Go back to robot and you've got this think tank scientific breakaway organization turning into a group of terrorists, mm -hmm. which, which is a real thing. That's where actually really happened. Um, so there's a lot of that, you know, throughout Doctor Who, the whole political um, line. And, you know, just recently, the last couple of seasons, you know, when, you know, Rosa Parks and yeah. you know, things like that, just, you know, obviously getting into some you know, controversial topics as well. But I think people complain that it's sort it's it's recently become more progressive. Like they're they're not as much painting in broad strokes and and um it's it's become more pointed and I still don't think that's true. I, I think like things like the Sunmakers are still very deliberately being, you know, on on point on one message of well it maybe not one he's actually taken jabs at a couple of different things here being oh, yeah. the um inland revenue service and the tax kind of jokes is this is coming from a very liberal government at the time, um, uh, Labor Party that um, 
is supposedly that kind of is the the crux of a lot of his tax jokes and such. Oh yeah. But then he's poking. He's also on the other side of the coin, poking fun at the you know this this concept of commercial imperialism that this race of people is literally taking a society or an entire race of people, transplanting them somewhere to just work them to death essentially and work a planet to death and then moving on to the next. You know, like, well, well, this is um, I think sort of the genius that Robert Holmes had with this one is that he's basically showing like the common man is squeezed between these two things, right? you're mm -hmm. worked to death and then you're squeezed by the taxes and then it's like where are you gonna <laughs> right. you know how are you gonna live under those circumstances and i think that i think he was trying to say like this is the way that he felt right now you know he he slaves away writing all day long he doesn't get paid but pittance and then the taxes come and take away what little bit he had so yeah he's definitely poking fun at both the bbc and at uh the the their their tax system there well, uh, the, yeah. the thing that i wanted to yeah. say though about the show getting political is and i'm glad larry brought up they had the daleks because louis marx before that wrote planet of giants in yes. 1964 yep. a very political you know uh, commentary about businesses and you know how they don't care about uh, you know, uh, ecological damage because of making profits and things like that. So the show, even from the William Hartnell era, has oh, yeah. been doing political stories. I think it's funny that people have an issue with it. And hey, the one thing I remember watching before Doctor Who was Star Trek. Oh, and, yeah. You know, to me, it's yeah. like sci-fi is always political, right? Like, it doesn't matter what show it is, you know, let this be your last battlefield on Star Trek. You know, we got the race with the white on the right and black on the left and black on the right and white on the left and it's like you know so to me this this whole question is silly you know that's what sci-fi does well is to do <laughs> politics and put it just in a different context to help you understand you know and so that's it's it's fine you, know? you get a lot of that in exactly. frontier in space too it does a lot of that where there's political upheaval on both sides on both races so mm. they, they, they do address it all over the place it's it's really um, it's it's a great storyline, and and of course the Sunmakers uh, also reminds me the way that some of the the, the jokes are written. It, it reminds me a lot of Douglas Adams scripts later on. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I I I can't watch the Pirate Planet without laughing out loud. It's just so amazingly written and a city of death. Oh yeah, course. and that just, Pirate Planet's also got the uh, a, a villain in it that's very yeah the captain over the top. Yeah. And, like, it reminded me of the Gatherer like, actually when when yeah. when I saw yeah. the Pirate Planet. It reminded me a lot of Sunmakers. There was and there was somebody behind the captain, but he was like Mister Fibule. You know that whole that over the top <laughs> acting and and uh, just just brilliant stuff. But that's that's the kind of thing and and Tom Baker seasons and of course you know Tom himself talks about how you know the 75 76 77 years were were kind of the heyday and then things started to turn um when you know different producers came in or different director came in and then when john nathan turner finally showed up he goes i'm out so yep. that's you know i'm not doing this anymore this is ridiculous well and i think yeah. john nathan turner was the first guy to come in and do the like i'm gonna wipe the slate and change everything yeah. and we're gonna reinvent the show and i think tom at that point had become you know the show so much that he yeah. yeah he he didn't take it very well and i know he and john nathan turner did not get along when when i met i met both of them in chicago in 1985 and you basically at the very end of the convention when they got everybody on stage john pertwee got off the stage grabbed tom baker and pulled him on stage because he didn't want to go up there with nathan turner oh no <laughs> yeah yeah i know that they did yeah. not get i mean I, I guess from um and just to put this in like a Sunmakers context, this, uh, I believe this either this season or this serial uh, was the first um, 
show that John Nathan Turner worked on as yes, he, yes, he in his first role as like a, the floor manager, production manager uh, for the show. And, and he, he would then, you know, be with the show for the rest of its original run first as, you know, the production manager all the way up to uh, script editor and producer. So yes. well, anyway, so. So I made bringing John Nathan Turner up is relevant to this this episode. Yes, so. <laughs> absolutely. I noticed his name in the credits, and I thought, oh, yeah, okay, that yeah. must be one of his early ones. And I, yeah. I can't remember. I I came across it somewhere in my reading about this one, uh, whether this was his actual first episode or whether it's just this season he jumped on. But I don't know because I don't. I didn't see him in the uh, in the previous story, but he may have been. Yeah. You know, he may have been. So maybe this is. Yeah, maybe this is really yeah. the first one. And this doctor could be a problem. In what way, your voluminousness? Has a long history of violence and of economic subversion. He will not be sympathetic to my company's business methods. A criticism that like is often given of Doctor Who in general, and I think. Mm -hmm. This applies both to the classic and new series is that the doctor is often um, known to like swoop in into where there's a, a situation where um, especially in the more political episodes with two two sides and um, a lot of uh, turmoil and then uh, kind of stops the immediate threat usually battles a monster of some sort that has something to do with it or some kind of an alien threat even in this one although it's not a monster there's an outside force that's kind of keeping these people at bay. And then um, when the alien monster is vanquished, uh, you you know, kind of shakes hands and says, you know, good luck and gets back from the TARDIS and disappears <laughs> right, know, off right. on his travels. So um, that it very much is the case in the Sunmakers where um, he might have left these people in a situation that was actually just as bad, if not worse than they were in, in the first place, <laughs> uh, being on Pluto. Um, we also never hear, okay, and let me, I guess I'll just, just checklist a few of these before I get to the question, but um, they mentioned that there are eight, is it eight, six or eight megropolises on- Six, I believe. Six, six megropolises. On, yeah, megropolises yeah. on Pluto. They never mention anything happening to any of the other ones. So we never really get any picture of what else is going on on Pluto. Um, he kind of hands over, knowingly hands power over to a group of people that although um, likable in general, are a little bit bloodthirsty, kind of dangerous rebels. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, well, well a mix no of hopelessly problem. naive people and bloodthirsty rebels, <laughs> yeah. which right. is not a great recipe for governance. <laughs> and um, it's been it's been mentioned that perhaps the ending of this is so overtly um, that he, you know, so overtly kind of leaves the situation and kind of just like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I did this and now I'm out of here. Uh, your alien menace is gone. Good luck. Um, that Robert Holmes may have been actually kind of poking fun at the at the fact that the doctor does this in the script because it just seems so um, obvious. But a, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Robert Robert Shearman and uh, Toby Haydock's books, uh, oh, Running sure. Down Corridors, but. Um, Robert Sherman had an interesting quote, and I just wanted to share kind of like the um, his take on these, uh, and I think his his take on this was how I got these uh, the term bloodthirsty to describe these rebels. And once I started reading, it, I was like, ah, yeah, he's got a point. But um, that the usual rules of Doctor Who stories. This is his quote. I'm quoting Robert Sherman. The usual rules of how Doctor Who stories work don't apply here. In a real revolution, the innocent and downtrodden need to become murderous thugs to defeat their oppressors, and mercy is a weakness. And he quotes um, 
he cites the scene where they, you know, the final end of Gatherer Hade, where they just pick him up and, you know, celebrate, celebratorily toss him off of the roof of a, but um, anyway, so. Eat the rib. What do you, yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think of, um, in, in regards to the Sunmakers, how the doctor leaves these people and is, um, do they, is there, is there any hope for them <laughs> moving forward? And Larry, I guess let's, let's start with you on that. And you could touch well, on this. This is a Doctor Who trend as well. If oh, you want it, to talk about it. It really is. You can name another, a number of stories where the doctor is like, oh, well, uh, sorry, got to go. You know, <laughs> glad we're here. Could you, could you help set things up a little bit? And it's kind of, um, and it, and it happens in, in the Tom Baker era so often where, yeah, he left it to these people who basically now are no longer under the control of the mind-altering chemical. Their dictator and leaders are dead, and now all they have is Mandrill, basically, who was the closest thing to a leader that anybody had because he organized the underground and all these people that are just used to going their their jobs every day and it's it kind of reminds you you know like when when the soviet union no longer was communist for a while and everybody was like what do we do <laughs> i go to work and i go home but now i can't do that anymore because this is not the way it is so it it's it definitely leaves a lot of questions like if if they came back to pluto you know a few years later or went back to earth where they supposedly went and and i and i forgot to look this up in the history in the lance parkin history of the universe book i usually check mm -hmm. that to see where it comes in the timeline because usually oh yeah it'll, re it'll refer to like oh it happened here and then after this the colonization you know leads to them abandoning earth for space station nerva or whatever the the whole whatever the continuity is mm -hmm. or whatever the discontinuity guide um says about it um and and that's uh, that's not the first time that the doctors left the people in the lurch. I always think of uh, State of Decay as another good one example where they, they <laughs> yeah. defeat the vampires. It's like, all right, you're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> you're stuck on a planet in space. Good good luck. And or um, or, or some of the or even the next story, Underworld, is mm -hmm. kind of the same type of thing. Or or even the face of evil. You know, just just kind of when they leave, it's kind of all okay. Now we're well, now what? <laughs> yeah. Now what do we do? Um, and it's a quite, it's quite a, it, you know, the uh, the doctor kind of leaves everything kind of a mess. And I think, I'm sure that's what the Time Lords do their face palm every time they go, yeah, we let him go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you uh, kind of, for once, the Time Lords are very, uh, very often not, re you know, not relatable and on purpose, but for once you kind of think like, yeah, maybe they, maybe you kind of see where they're coming from in regards to like, the doctor's yeah, methods at times. Yeah, but. this is, is not a good thing. Yeah, it's, uh, but uh, it's, it's very, it's, it's prevalent and, uh, and, and picks up even too into the Peter Davison era a little mm -hmm. bit where he does the same thing, but he does a little, you know, um, a little more uh, like, well, oh, well, you know, he shrugs I mean, his shoulders. I think a bit. It, it keeps up all the way into the modern series. Oh, yeah. Now in the modern series, they, they will give like a throwaway line when the companion will be like, but doctor, what about this? And he'll, and the doctor will rattle off like something like, oh, don't worry. A few years down the line, this is this and this. And they'll give them, you know, they'll give it a line, but yeah, really yeah. it's not any different. They've just kind of given no. it a throwaway explanation. And, they just kind of go and, oh, we can't stay. Um, I'm sorry. We've got to be, we've got to be somewhere else, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anywhere yeah. else, but here. <laughs> yeah. and it's usually something along the lines of like oh don't worry that you know peasant girl we just rescued she's going to become a great queen and rule and you know you know I, I, I throw in another one too but forever you know. my, my favorite if you like quantum leap my favorite episode is where he jumps into somebody and immediately saves someone from choking and the choking man is comforted by someone says are you okay dr heimlich <laughs> you know is it believable but you know just just uh 
you know, th those types of things happen, what they call now timey wimey wibbly wobbly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Nathan, any thoughts on the, the convoluted question? But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we can go all the way back to this Daleks where the doctor saves the Thals from the Daleks and then it's just like, hey, you guys were starving, you know, whatever, you know, figure out the Dalek technology if you can. All right, bye. <laughs> You know, it's just like, okay, very nice, you know. So this yeah. has been a long-standing thing of the show since the beginning. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. You know, but it's, you know, I mean, like, so much of my childhood is, you know, a lot of these shows are the the stranger, you know, comes to town. I mean, it started with Westerns, but there's so many of those, you know, from Knight Rider to the A-Team and all the stuff when I was growing up. You know, like, it's always the situation. The person comes into town, solves the problem, and then they just leave right at the end, right? You know, mm -hmm. they don't come, they don't stick around for the, you know, well... What about all the knock-on effects and making sure that all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed? It's like, there was a problem these people could not overcome on their own. I've come to handle that, and then the rest of it is up to you. And so, you know, I, I don't really have that much of a problem with it, and I don't think it's that much of a problem with the doctor. Obviously, certain cases are worse or better yeah. than others. Um, I guess what know, I just found interesting is the... the um, the uh, suggestion that perhaps Robert Holmes is kind of poking fun at this, uh, but it for him it's not overt enough. I don't feel like it's because he just I, he tends to just you know put it on the page, but. Yeah, I don't really think that it was of all the things he was poking fun of in this story. I don't think that this was one of them. I think that he was just like, oh, okay, like the problem solved, the bad guys are taken care of, and and like a lot of the stories, just okay, let's get the doctor out of here and just kind of hand wave it with some dialogue that somehow there are ships apparently available that people can all move back to Earth. The Earth has been able to replenish itself since the human race hasn't been there for a while. Everything's going to be okay from now on for these people. You know, and and don't worry about it any more than that. So I mean, yeah. I I mean, let's not start talking about other home scripts like Ark in Space, where they supposedly had like this narrow margin, <laughs> where like all these people genetically had to be there to have a viable population, but like six of them die. So it's yeah. like we don't we don't stop around to figure out how that all gets solved and if they are able to make it. You know, it's just yeah. like they okay. may have just destroyed the human race. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, right. You know, I mean, I, I think this is common for homes to just let you know not worry about that kind of stuff we've solved the problem the immediate problem that the people couldn't take care of let them solve all the rest mm -hmm. yeah. um david compared to and i know you've seen um pretty much all of the new series and, and mm -hmm. some limited uh limited round of classics what do you think in comparison like um the ending or kind of the way the doctor um well basically what we were talking about just kind of packing up and taking off is is it does it feel similar to some of the the modern stories it's something that that stuck out in um older stories you've seen or is it just an no, accepted I, I, part of the series <laughs> i i don't think it sticks out at all if anything i i think it's almost to his character because i i guess in my opinion i always felt the doctor was a very selfish and centric character when it's all said and done so and especially in the case of this story i feel like the only reason he even takes interest in it is because well uh, i need to get off this planet and the only way I'm going to do that is if I sort this mess out. And then once he's done, he's like, well, I'm, I'm done with this. I, I did what I needed to do to get back to the TARDIS and move on. So I'm, I'm moving on now. Um, and, and cause like, 
in my experience, unless a companion goes like, hey, Doc, aren't you uh, going to fix up your mess over here? He doesn't really care. Um, he's just going to do what he needs to do in the situation to satisfy his, his self needs and then mm -hmm. be on his way. And that's always how he's been. And, and like, just as far as like early, like first doctor didn't even want to interfere with stuff. He wanted to stick to his like little time Lord code, like don't interfere, collect his samples and, but yeah, and try his best not to be involved. And like, and I, I feel that happens a lot in new who like kill the moon when 12 is basically just like, no, nope, it's your problem. I'm not even going to get involved. Yeah. You're human. You figure it out. You know, uh, um, he only cares as much as the situation as it allows. And as only, uh, and I feel like the only time he really actually cares about something is if he becomes sentimental or because a companion is basically directly asking and doesn't want to look bad in front of them. Right. Or, yep. or would he, he would he or his and or his like companion or close circle become endangered he becomes right you know, he, he he cares very much but and i think he cares about principles like he's got these big you know grand uh like nathan said earlier like that scene with bisham in the um in the what they call it the cleansing room or the, the basically the prison where they're going to wipe their brains out um right. I think I like the way that that how Nathan put it that that was the moment he decided like oh okay well I'm gonna have to fix this and I think that's true like that that's kind of a crux in most of these stories like he's he's just a wanderer passing through to a certain point and then all of a sudden you know he gets to a, a point well I can't you know consciously like walk away from this now I'm, I'm too involved or I, I've seen too much I have to fix this problem but once that problem's fixed He's out. <laughs> He's yeah, just back to work. We, we never see all the times the doctor arrives somewhere, just sits around for a while, says, Hey, this place was nice, and then he leaves, right? You know, right. Like, <laughs> like, you know, the doctor is just a wander that drifts through. We just happen to see the ones that are interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Are we interrupting something? What do you say, citizen? Well, somehow I have the impression you're thinking of killing yourself. It's the taxes. What? The taxes. I can't pay the taxes. So I was. I wanted to talk, and um, I guess especially to you, David, because you said mm -hmm. you uh, said it was your first Leela episode, and uh, being that she is one of my favorites, um, I always go back and forth of, of who my favorite Doctor Who companion is, and it's always kind of a tie between Leela and Ace. Mm -hmm. But um, the uh, basically just wanted to get your impression. What do you think of Leela? Because I know when I first started watching, or when I, and I watched them all in sequence, so when I first saw Face of Evil, which is the first one that she is in, um, it was kind of after after Sarah Jane Smith being kind of a fresh breath of air and such a wonderful companion, uh, it was, I, and I'm sure this was a very modern thing for me to think, but I was a little taken aback, like, oh, we replaced Sarah Jane Smith with like skimpy dressed warrior woman. Um, mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, oh, you know, I was a little disheartened by it until like honestly her second story and I was like okay I'm totally on board and I just love I love her arc and I especially if you follow her into the big finish realm um just everything mm -hmm. they do with her character she's just absolutely a favorite. Oh, yes. yes but um anyway what, what was your impression of Leela and Louise Jameson and, and her as a companion to the fourth doctor um well she certainly is different um especially in stark contrast to who be came before her and who I believe comes after. Is it Romana that comes after her? Yes. Yes, Romana one. Yeah. Yes. So if you're looking at Romana too, which is almost kind of like the polar opposite of what Leela is, and then Sarah Jane, who is 
kind of on this pedestal compared to some of the other companions, especially considering her staying power. Um, it, it, it was definitely something that I had to get used to almost immediately because most of the other stories I've watched have been either Sarah Jane and Harry or Romana too. And mm -hmm. it, it, it is just a completely different companion. And uh, unfortunately, the, the one I came into, I don't think they explained too much of why the way she is. She, she was from a human colony where they crashed and they weren't, didn't have any supplies. So they like sort of descended into being like a Stone Age culture, even though they had come from Earth originally. Yeah, they reference in um, the Collector reference it. Well, she tells the Collector she's a, of the Sevateen, which is the, the name of her people. And it actually, in the, in the uh, story of the Face of Evil, it turns out that that was a misunderstanding of a printing on the, I think on the, on the side of the ship or somewhere that said survey team from the original crash, but uh, they couldn't, you know, read the aged letters and it became the name of their society. Um, so. Right. Uh, and, and, and they fought the Tesh who were the technicians who stayed back at the yeah. ship. So it was the right. two tribes were the Seva team and the Tesh. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, so she was like, essentially I would, they're a little, they're more advanced than cave people per se, but um, yeah, definitely kind of a um, warrior race, uh, hunter gatherer type society is where she came from or grew up and before she joined the doctor in face of evil. So she kind of offsets, you know, the doctor. So th this is kind of why I think she's such a great companion or ends up being such a great companion is because she has all the kind of opposite instincts being the, the doctor being somebody who has come from a society at least as much as we know about it at this point at the Sun Makers, a society of stuffy <laughs> um, bureaucrats. And um, she, uh, so that, yeah, they're just, they're, they're great polar opposites. And I think that, that the best companions are usually people that have different character traits from the doctor. Like I, I never really, right. I shouldn't say I never like it when they like become too much like the doctor. Um, it can be played, it can be played well, but anyway getting long-winded but she's great because of how different she is and that she has those instincts of you know i'm just gonna run into there and stab those guards and we'll be done with them and they won't be a problem anymore and the doctor's like no no no, you can't do that in fact there's a um, really great scene in um the sun makers where well first of all he hypnotizes the guard and accidentally hypnotizes leela as well which is really funny um and then um the one where she's going to stab the guard this this same guard and he says no 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 you can't stab you're, you keep, don't kill him and she is uh she's like yeah but last time i spared somebody's life they came back and and almost killed me and and all this and uh he talks her out of killing the killing the guy and then later in the collector's office he does wake up and almost stabs the doctor and she threat or uh, holds i'm sorry holds the doctor um hostage and she has to throw a knife and, and take him out so she ends up being right about it at right. the end. so um, but anyway, sorry, David, I got real long-winded in the middle of your Oh, no, your no, it's quite there, okay. but... Uh, but, and that, that's kind of, yeah, exactly my first impression of her. She is kind of the polar opposite of the Doctor, which must be a, a real interesting uh, thing for the Doctor to experience, especially because I've, I've never gone into it with a companion who's, like, completely star starry-eyed and has absolutely no idea what she's getting into as much as I feel like Leela is. But at the same time, she does... She really adapts quickly, that's for sure. Like, as soon as she kind of gets her head in the situation, she knows exactly what she's going to do, for better or for worse. It's very decisive. Um, you guys, thoughts on on Leela, just in general, or, or Louise Jameson? I know um, I, I know Larry um, 
had the opportunity to meet her probably many times. You've met a lot yeah. of people, but yeah. um, I, I, for the first time, had an opportunity to meet her at Chicago Tardis this year, and she's just uh, couldn't be a nicer person. She's a uh, yeah, she's she's brilliant. She's uh, I, I met her the first time I met her was in '85, and that was you know of course in in the last Chicago Tardis as well. But she she hasn't changed. She's still the same. Very kind. Very nice. Very you know loves her fans, which um, which is a really you know wonderful thing. And all the actors, at least all the actors that they bring around to the conventions now, are absolutely just thrilled to be there and really love the. Uh, their 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 stuff but i know um louise in talking about playing leela she really thought it was a big challenge and in playing a, a character who's very simple minded you know and, and louise is very well educated she's very smart but her character is supposed to be like well i don't know what a fork is and uh, i don't you know what is why we always eat meat from the bone you know that kind of thing <laughs> so it, it's a very interesting cultural thing and i'm and i'm I'm thinking for the doctor taking in somebody that on the primitive scale, not technology. Uh, it kind of, it, it was a, it was a big first for the, for the series to kind of go that far down uh, for that, that connection between, you know, time Lord and, you know, basically primitive and trying to educate her to the point where she does grow up over the course of that time and learns a lot. And it's, it's really quite fun to watch. If you watch, you know, especially uh, the talents of Wing Chiang which is I think one of the best stories of that, of that time, just from, you know, the way it was written. And of course, you know, Jago and Lightfoot, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Another really great Robert Holmes script yeah. with very memorable characters that yeah. are just unique to that story. So. And of course they have their own series in Big Finish now. Yeah, so yeah. it's, it's really quite, it, it's really a lot of fun, but, um, and of course where Leela, you know, Leela ends up where we don't expect her to is to remain on Gallifrey. So that was, you know, just a very big surprise and how that how that all ended. And of course, she was bowing out of the series at the time. But it, it was really quite um, interesting to see her in that light. And of course, after speaking with her over the years, you know, she she really loved playing Leela. And she really embraced the character. And, you know, and like, like, I, like I mentioned before, she and Tom Baker did not get along very well. But that made her focus on her character and focus on how she was going to do this character and how she was going to you know, she was always getting feedback from, you know, and, you know, the director or anybody would say, hey, how is this doing? You know, do, should I be more like this? Should I be more aggressive? And, and, and of course, she, you know, also had to maintain, you know, had to be in tip top shape to do the character because of all the stuff she had to do. But it, it was a lot of fun. I think Leela stands out there as one of the top cam companions in Doctor Who. Yeah, I uh, I always hate it when people just dismiss her because she's in the skimpy outfit. Uh, because honestly, you know, um, I think the this first costume, the one that she's wearing in this one, isn't really that sexualized. Yeah. It it seems like something that somebody who's in uh you know a culture like that might wear. The second costume is definitely a bit sexualized. I mean, they're definitely making it tighter, accentuating her chest more, things like that. You know, I I might prefer that costume, but you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, but but yeah, I mean, because the artistic character standpoint, so much, of course, right? Exactly. Yeah, 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 you know, that's the one they had to sew her into. Um, right. So, yeah. uh, you know, but, but, but it's, um, you know, I mean, it's unfair to the character to say that because I mean, she's assertive, she's able to, you know, give the doctor some moral argument from some time. I mean, one of my favorite big finish stories actually really capitalizes on that, which is Wrath of the, the Iceni, 
which is a, a Leela yeah. story, but that's a really good one. But mm-hmm. I mean, she she's able to, you know, come at things from a different perspective and she is courageous. She is strong, you know. I mean, she's in that same sort of mold as a, a Barbara, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. a Zoe, an Ace, a, a Romana. You know, these are the companions I really like because they're the ones that are able to tell the doctor, no, you know, like this is what's right. This is why it's right. And they have their own sort of moral authority. And they're also, you know, willing to, you know, go into dangerous situations and everything. They're not screamers. You know, they're the ones, you know, they're, they're, I mean, they might scream once or twice, but they're not, that's not their function in the show is to be the screamer that needs to be rescued. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think Leela is fantastic, and I think Louise Jamison, like Larry said, very nice. I've met her a couple of times also, mm-hmm. and so yeah, no, I I think that she's great. Yeah, I think that the best companions are always the the ones who can call the doctor on, on for lack of a better word, his bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, be able to like you know put up that 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 fight, whether it's a moral issue or whether it's just something that he and his you know, being, you know, thinking at the at this level way beyond, you know, regular humans or the people he's interacting with, whether he's just missing something. Um, so, you know, and, and it's not that I dislike, you know, the people that are quote unquote, the screamers necessarily, but they're certainly the ones I don't have a lot of, you know, memories about, or my favorite scenes aren't built around those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are characters who are there strictly for exposition that are there to be like, hey, doctor, what's this all about? And Right, um, right. I, I, I kind of like them to have it, a little doctor? more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many different ways can you inflect the the question? But what is it, doctor? But what is yeah. it, doctor? Right. But what is it, doctor? <laughs> and I do think it's interesting. And 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 I know Nathan's a big fan of her, but because we did a panel uh, this year, Chicago or last year, Chicago Tardis about about Barbara. Mm. Uh, but oh, yeah. yeah, first Doctor companion Barbara Wright is such an archetype of that type of companion that we're talking about then it's funny that they go a really long while without um really having one of those i mean zoe kind of i because she is you know a genius and she's mm-hmm. she's not just there to scream but they kind of use her that way too much and mm-hmm. um i think she has potential as a character but doctor can i speak now all right if you must what is it well the column has stopped moving so it is not important what we might have gone right through the time spiral. Why didn't you tell me? I tried to, but you, you didn't. Me. I did. You didn't. I did. You didn't. I did. It's confounded pig. It's always jamming things up. Stay calm. Let's uh, go through just some uh, final thoughts on on the Sunmakers, um, and let's go ahead and give it a rating system. I was trying to come up with what what my rating system for this show would be, and um, I think I'm just going to make it unique to what the serial that we're talking about. So for this one, let's do out of 10 Talmars, what are you giving, uh, <laughs> giving the Sunmakers? And um, let's start with you, David. So this is this was, uh, about my fifth or sixth uh, Tom Baker story that I've watched, uh, but it's definitely immediately sky high. Um, I think the only episode or serial that I watched that had a bigger impression on me was Genesis of the Dialects. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well written but story. Sunmakers was absolutely fantastic. It was imaginative. I was immediately sucked into the lore and to what this company was. Not only just an entire oppressive force, but also a religion and just tons of other things about like the background and setting. I thought the villains were wonderfully campy and yet completely and totally evil. Um, man, there was just a lot to like. The Doctor, Leela, everything was just on point and fantastic. I would probably rate it nine out of 10. Um, Nathan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, if I had to sum up this serial in one word, it's fun. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and this is, you know, I mean, Holmes is great because he can go really, really dark. You know, we just came out of the Hinchcliffe era where he wrote some very dark stories. Um, yes. And and then here, I mean, it's got some shades of darkness, but it's really kind of a lighthearted romp that just has these few little stings here and there to hit home the fact that, no, this, these are still life and death dangerous situations so that you don't get to the point where it's all just way too lighthearted which is kind of one of the problems that happens to the show over the next couple of seasons, I think. But here we still got Holmes helming things. And so he's never going to let it get that far afield. And so, um, yeah, I mean, wonderfully acted fun episode or fun serial. Um, this to me is one of the highlights, um, certainly of the, of the, of the post Hinchcliffe era. Uh, I will give it a nine out of 10 Talmars. Larry, what do you think? Well, it, interesting enough, before I even knew this podcast was happening, I've watched the Sum Makers probably about a week before that because I, <laughs> I, it's one I, it's like it's a, it's one of my go-to episodes when I want to see some classic Tom Baker, and and of course this one and and the one that follows too, Underworld, which is also mm-hmm. a very well-written story, um, I and of course uh, in in the words of uh, Collector Haig, I give it a solid ten Talmars. <laughs> um, yeah, I. I, I pretty much right there with you guys it's it's really a great and i like that you called it fun because that's Mm -hmm. i think the thing that's the most genius about this script for me and i really like robert holmes in general i guess i would call him my favorite doctor who writer just because of his consistency Mm -hmm. um but he is able to write something that is very thought-provoking uh about very serious things um but write it 100 as comedy like this it's essentially so so you're talking about this this kind of like lighthearted romp that never really gets too dark but at the same time still is thought-provoking and still is like really great um sci-fi and leaves you with a you know a really strong sense of what he was trying to say um i think those things are rare in a writer be, to be able to do that um a most great com like i guess most great sci-fi and most great comedy will do that for you so he just kind of puts this together really well. And it's probably the only time other than trying to run down the Robert Holmes script, but the only time he really nails that like fun, but kind of dark uh, thing. Maybe the, maybe the two doctors is a little bit comparable, but it's not mm-hmm. quite the story this is. It doesn't, doesn't quite, <laughs> yeah. but that certainly is played a little more lightly as well. But um, I don't know, anyway. the Rivos operation maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's a good one too. Yeah, that's that, that that goes, I think, a little more into the comedy uh, aspect. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, no, it's 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 really a great. I I love the uh, characters in it. I really like um, Cordo. I really like Bisham. I love the villains. The villains, both of them, are just fantastic, and that has a lot to do with the performances. But um, yeah, I think Henry Wolf, uh, the collector in this, is perhaps one of the most memorable Doctor Who villains of all time. And this is his only appearance. So um, unless they do end up, you know, dragging him out of the chair and, you know, getting him back to regular size someday for a doctor to go up against. <laughs> well, he is um, still alive, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I For me, it's... Uh, I think I'm going to say nine out of 10 Talmars too. It just, it's, it's such a good episode and it is one I, I this, like I said, we, we were selecting these at random. So I was so happy uh, that we picked this one, um, especially for, for David uh, having seen relatively few classic who episodes. I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is, this is a great one to dive in. Um, mm-hmm. and hopefully. <laughs> hopefully uh, yeah. It was definitely you know. a cut above the rest compared to some of the serials I've watched. It was, it mm-hmm. was really well done. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and this is, it's kind of like right towards the end of what I consider like my favorite part of Doctor Who, or at least the Baker era, but uh, probably in general. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of the best, I think. I, I don't like doing top tens because I would drive myself crazy, but you know, I okay. imagine this would be somewhere in that realm. <laughs> you know, it would be a top episode of some sort for me. So anyway, um, I want to thank all of you guys for uh, being here with us. And uh, You're welcome. The Doctor Who Collectors podcast can be found easily at DoctorWhoCollectors.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. I'm Nathan Laws. You can find me on the 42cast at 42cast.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page facebook.com slash 42 cast but you can listen to our podcast at um itunes or apple Podcasts or whatever it's calling itself these days uh <laughs> stitcher radio and google play and i've uh, been david andrews i'm part of the tv junkyard podcast which is a sub podcast of the video junkyard podcast so you can find us literally under the same banner as video junkyard uh we've been hosted on soundcloud and spotify uh thanks you guys for being here and um this is uh been the inaugural episode of the uh, Police Box in a Junkyard podcast and uh, hope to uh, see you guys back again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. Be back. Yep. Thank you. That was a lot Thank of fun. You. Thank you. And now it's time for this episode's Police Box in the Junkyard trivia question. I am borrowing the trivia question from the BBC Books Doctor Who, the official quiz book by Jacqueline Rayner, copyright 2014. Um, so, you know, if you do own that book, please don't go get it and look up the answer. Um, I do ask that if you are going to answer, you know, you, you could easily Google this stuff and, uh, find some way of looking it up. But in the spirit of fun, I hope you do not do that and actually attempt to answer the question from your, you know, encyclopedic knowledge of Doctor Who and all of uh, its related properties. So this week's trivia question and is... Can you identify the following Doctor Who producer from their initials? The initials are I-L. Please send your answers in via email at videojunkyardpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can uh, leave it a comment on our Facebook group, which is the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast Facebook group, which will, by the time the show airs, become a public group. Join us there chat about all things Doctor Who, not just answer the trivia question. But if you do know the answer to the question, please uh, send it in. First person who answers will at the very least get a shout out on the show, but we'll see if we can get you a little something extra. Um, really, it's all just for fun, but I'd like to throw surprises in at some point and uh, get everybody involved. So um, yeah, that's the trivia question for this week. Like we do at the end of every show, it's time to hit the big red button on the machine we call the randomizer and find out which Doctor Who television story we will be reviewing next time around. Amy, go ahead and hit that button. Seriously, you can't even push a button by yourself. I need a raise. And there we have it. Amy, in all in time and space... Where did we end up this time? Next time we will be talking about The Ark of Infinity, starring Peter Davison as the Doctor. Thanks again for listening. I hope you will consider joining us next time for our discussion about a Doctor Who television story, as well as our discussions about Doctor Who audio adventures, both audio books and audio plays. Also, we will be doing discussions of Doctor Who novels, nonfiction books, and other fun stuff. Until next time, I have been your host, Eric Branson, and this has been the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Special thanks to all of our guests and contributors. 
The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a proud member of the Video Junkyard podcast family and can be found on most major podcast providers including SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Podcast Addict, and Spotify. Doctor Who theme composed by Ron Grainer, arranged as Doctor Who retro theme by Neon Frontier. All rights to Doctor Who and its related materials belong to the BBC. and host and producer of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcasts. Now that you're listening to a thorough discussion of random Doctor Who episodes, why not find them on the Target book range, or the hardcover, or anything else with Doctor Who? For all things Doctor Who collectibles, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and everywhere you find your Doctor Who podcasts. Also a proud member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. You're listening to Police Box in a Junkyard Podcast. You ask him, he may show it. He simply elevates a stone where you want I would throw it. He's been to yesterday and somehow we all follow. 